hear now God's word. When they were released, that is Peter and John, and the man who was healed, because of course getting healing puts you in jail, they went to their friends and reported that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage? And why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. In tr for truly in this city there were gathered together against the holy servant, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak our word, sorry, your word, with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have made us people of the word, that we can go back time and time again to what you inspired to be written down, what you directed, that we might reflect upon your word and be encouraged even in our own day as we look back at what you have done so faithfully in the past. We pray this morning that as we are encouraged by the power of the kingdom, the power of what it means to be your sons and daughters, that your people would be encouraged. And whatever is said that is not true or useful for the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So as many as you, you know, I haven't gotten to show everybody the pictures yet. I know some of you are just waiting with bated breath to be asked over to go through my slides. But of course, what I got to do a lot of was see the power and the glory of creation, right? When you're in the West, particularly, there are player, places of great power and vistas where you see the forces that God unleashed at creation doing the things they do to create canyons, to create beautiful colors, the combinations of what happens when volcanoes explode and various minerals come together and then they get pressed together in the land. Then you drive by at sunset and it's gorgeous and it sings and it is powerful. You see the glory of creation. You see the power of mountains as we, we got to go up to Mount Rainier, and you see the weight of it, the gravity of it. And you imagine that now, as a few believers gathered in a room under the fear of oppression, pray that God would give them boldness where they are shakes. The power of God by the Holy Spirit, what makes the world move, what can make even the mountains and the firmness of creation sit up and take attention, it is when the Holy Spirit moves through His people 
to proclaim in boldness what is true about life and light in a world dominated by death and fear. It will make creation sit up and pay attention. The very foundations of the world itself quake when the Lord speaks. Creation longs to be shaken that way. It knows the goodness. In fact, Paul tells us that the whole world is groaning that we might be better stewards of the wonder and glory of God. It wants to break forth and shout and be moved by the goodness of God shown through His people in the Holy Spirit. And so this morning we want to look at what makes the earth move and quake. The very foundations of the buildings and the land in which we stand move because the words spoken reshape creation, reshape reality in line with eternal truth. Creation responds to the people of God gathered in praise and petition. It's powerful. So what makes it powerful? So we'll look at this morning, there's community, there is the reality of kingship, and there is, of course, the Holy Spirit. Community. You'll see the quotes on the front of your worship folder. There is an understanding that a human understanding of boldness shaped by years and years of individualistic thought, which has a basis in Scripture. And I could go on a whole other tirade about how the beauty of individualism is a recognition of individuals created in the image of God. But like so many good truths, it can get overemphasized against other truths that we may not find as popular right now, which is community. And so in the Bible, there's not competition between the uniqueness and the beauty of the individual and the reality that we were created to be in community. It's not good for man to be alone, that there is a way in which God created us to be interdependent, even as we were created unique in our individual gifts and talents and abilities and backgrounds and your individual relationship with God himself. But what we see in the book of Acts is not individuals being sent off to do great things. We find the community of faith gathered together and good things follow. And so Peter and John come back to their people. Now, interestingly enough, the, the word in the Greek here is, uh, can, be, can be translated my people or my family. It is not primarily a commercial relationship and it's not primarily an institutional relationship. There is an understanding that these people were intimately connected. And you know what I mean, right? So we can have commercial relationships where we can be civil with one another. You're my employee or you're somebody that I buy and sell things from. And we can have a civil sort of relationship, but the only reason we're connected to one another is that we have things that one another want. The church can sometimes function as a commercial relationship. Somebody wants a good feeling or some instruction about something and I need to make a living and so you come and I tell you something nice and then you pay me and then we have a commercial relationship. Goods and services are exchanged. But there's no intimacy, there's no relationship, there's no expectation that we would know one another beyond that commercial and pleasant knowledge that happens in a commercial relationship. There's nothing wrong with a commercial relationship. I don't know that it fits within the church ideally. And then there is 
the idea of an institutional relationship. We are in connection with one another because we are a part of an organization that shares particular institutional values. But what becomes primary an institutional relationship is the institution itself, which means if you get out of line with the institution's goals and vision, then you become expendable. The challenge with institutional relationships is the challenge we see oftentimes with our brothers and sisters in the Roman Catholic Church, but it's not limited to them. The church must be viewed as being good. Therefore, these tragedies that have happened cannot be brought to light. But of course, they're not alone because we know that Protestant churches do it as well. There are instances that some of us are aware of where ministers of great note and great power in their ministries have fallen rather dramatically. But nobody knows they've fallen because the notion is that their ministry for the Lord is so important that their indiscretions should not be brought to light. The challenge is that Scripture is not a big fan of that notion. We know the challenges and failures even of the greatest of saints, of Abraham, of David, of Solomon, of Paul and Peter. But in an institutional relationship, your faith in the institution might be undermined by my sin. But that's not the Greek word used in this context. We all know that our family's messed up. We all know that we are messed up. But if we're in that loving, intimate relationship, the commitment to family and to one another is to know each other well. To both accept one another and encourage one another in the goodness of growth that we are called to be and can be in Christ better. More Christ-like. More embodying of who He is. Just think about who's in the room. Who's leading the prayer meeting? Peter, denied Jesus three times. John, ran away naked. And yet, these people who are known by everybody else in the room, and John and Peter know the other folks in that room. Matthew's there tax collector, repentant. The women who were in that room, many restored from difficult relationships, Mary and Martha, Jesus' own mother, who regularly, Scripture tells us, after Jesus was born, had challenges in understanding the nature of his ministry. She's in the room. You see, the power of community is not based in the Bible on a shared institutional vision or a shared commercial relationship, but the intimacy of individuals dependent upon God, encouraging one another in the power of the Holy Spirit about what it means to be transformed by God. The goal is the resurrection and a recognition that all things are being remade and renewed. Therefore, I can be known by you and you can be known by me. That we can be in a room and share and pray and not be worried that if I confess something about me in front of you, you might find me no longer tolerable. 
You may find that I need more encouragement in the Lord. You may find that it's not a good time for me to be your pastor, but you love me and it's safe. Not safe for my sin, but safe from condemnation and rejection and being ostracized. There are consequences for sin, and there's no indication in Scripture. And in fact, we're going to read in a chapter that there are consequences for sin in a rather stark and unnerving way. Lying to the Lord apparently is not viewed terribly well. But that community of intimacy, that ability to be known, and to pray out of the reality of that is important. The people in that room know, knew each other. And in our own day and age, we, we wrestle with what that looks like. I hear people talking about the need for the church to be safe. And I don't know exactly what that means if the next line isn't, and a place to be sanctified. You see, if safety is just a place where I can express my brokenness with no expectation that God can and will change me, then I'm basically being asked to be in a safe place to die. Just call that hospice care. That's not what the church is supposed to be. We are not a mausoleum for people slowly being eaten up by their sin and death. Sanctification is that opportunity to recognize I'm no longer dying, I am alive. And as I wrestle with my sin, and I wrestle with what it is to need to have boldness and confidence and security in who God is, chances are I'm going to need you to speak into my life. And tell me that that fear is unhealthy for me and those around me. That longing and that lust is a perversion of what God designed. You may know it because you share that lust or that fear. And that intimacy in relationship and family and community allows us to be transparent with one another in the midst of that, not so that it's safe for my sin, but it's safe for me to be transformed. So there's a community here, a community of intimacy, a community that is building on these realities and unpacking the implications of the resurrection and the joy of not being afraid anymore. What is one of the reasons they're not afraid? Well, of course it is when they reflect on the sovereignty of God and this recitation of Psalm 2 and the great power of who God is and the fact that all of creation and all of uh, created beings and humanity and the powers of this world can plan and plot and it is hilarious in a tragic way. The Lord scoffs. Their power is so insignificant, it is laughable. And for the believer, it is not a delight to laugh in the brokenness and sin of the world. It is so freeing, though, in the midst of what would cause us fear to laugh at the absurdity of the claims of death and brokenness for control. 
when they tell us, if you do this or don't do this, you'll lose all sense of security. You'll lose your place in the world. You'll lose face. You'll lose power. You'll lose beauty. You'll lose love. You'll lose relationship. And we see that it's a lie in light of the kingdom of God. And we scoff as the world arranges itself in a way to try and undermine the truths of God because we know where real power comes from. Real power comes from the creator and the sustainer. Two parts of Psalm 2. God created everything. It's good to know the creator of the universe and have the creator on your side. It just works out better. If he can create the world, chances are he could fix it. Knowing the Creator is a net plus. And the believers believe that as they profess the reality of the God who created the world and therefore created life and light, that knowing Him is better than knowing the powers of death, the powers of decay and fear. But He's not a clockwork God. This is where our Enlightenment brothers and sisters got it wrong. He didn't create this thing and then leave. The fact that there's still brokenness doesn't mean that God left. It does mean he's a God of process, and we get that throughout Scripture. Rarely does he do things instantaneously. The decades and the years go by. Why? Because he's gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. And that actually God's slowness is grace. Because if he did things quickly, most of us wouldn't be in the room. Most of us are European descent. If actually the world ended in 70 AD, I wouldn't be here. Because trust me, we're running around somewhere in Bavaria in skins, living in mud huts. Had no knowledge of Jesus Christ. World ends in 70 AD, my family line is a goner. Do I understand why in the midst of that many others suffer, that there's still brokenness? Does that a justification for sin? No. No, we can never say that pain and suffering is acceptable to God as a justification for his slowness in coming back, in his patience. I don't understand how that math works out. What I do know is that God will restore to everyone who has been robbed of justice and mercy. That God will restore rightly to all those who have been stolen from. That a just and merciful God, when he does bring all things to fruition, will comfort all those who suffered. To what at the moment seemed like for pointless and meaningless reasons. We may not know the reason. But that does not mean that the, the sustainer is not present. And Jewish history certainly gave those first believers an understanding of God's patience and the challenge of believing in a sustaining God when decades and hundreds of years passed in what seemed to be the silence of God. They were in Egypt for a while, and that was difficult. It wasn't always great when they were in the land. And then from the time of the return after the Babylonian exile, there had been 400 years of silence. The believers in that room who were primarily Jewish knew what it meant to hear the silence of God. And yet they praise God as a sustainer. 
They have been revived in knowing that because Jesus has come and been resurrected and they are moved by the reality of a God when the time is right, acts powerfully in creation and powerfully on behalf of his people. He is the sustainer and creator. And so as God's people gather together in the intimacy of their need, they remind one another of the power of their creator and their sustainer. Now I take pause here, as as I often do, briefly, to caution us in our day and age, in this country, to be careful how we imagine praying this prayer. And my only encouragement is this. Imagine how the other would pray this prayer. There are ways in which in a changing culture it is tempting for those who have held power for quite some time to feel like we are heading towards a time of oppression where we're not being heard. And that may or may not be true and it's a fun discussion for another time. But it's usually not advantageous for us to put ourselves in the place of praying this prayer first, especially when that causes a tendency to imagine our own needs more than the other. And again, we've raised this suggestion before in sermons. What happens if this prayer is prayed by the historically segregated African-American church as they gathered around a burned-out building that was burned because they decided to try and encourage people to vote in their community? What does it look like when that people pray this prayer? in the midst of needing power and boldness to speak into a broken and fallen world. What happens when the other prays this prayer? It's easy for me to imagine what I want and need when I pray this prayer. It will make me far less likely to be arrogant or distant if I imagine what it would look like for women to pray this prayer who've lost their job or can't get paid equally, even though they have the same level of education or opportunity. What would it look like to wrestle with a homosexual believer who has lost their job simply because somebody found out in their job that they were wrestling with same-sex attraction and they come back to their church community looking for support? Is it just to imagine that simply because they wrestle with one idolatry and disordered love that they should be more subject to losing their job than someone who doesn't? What does it look like for the other to pray this prayer? Lord, be my boldness and my strength. Not that I am righteous, not that I'm perfect, not that because I stand before you as one without sin, you should hear my prayer. But Lord, in my brokenness, in my need, absolutely one who would deny you three times and make your head spin how quickly I would distance myself from the goodness of God if it seemed expeditious at the moment. Lord, that broken person prays for the boldness to declare the power of the resurrection in the midst of his own failings. What does it look like to pray this prayer as the other? Lastly, the Holy Spirit. All of this is, of course, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic if the Holy Spirit isn't in and through 
this prayer and in and through this movement. The Greek word is also the same word that's in verse 13. It's uh, present in, uh, in this passage as well. Uh, the word for boldness is freedom, courage. And again, I'm always reticent to sort of slam all of the lexical possibilities into one word at any given moment. But what we know is the Greek word expresses a measure of freedom and confidence. Right? It is the fact that the disciples, Peter and John, were relatively uneducated men and yet spoke with a freedom and knowledge of God and the power of God that made people take note. There is a confidence and a freedom. The boldness is not simply to declare truth in an unbending, unflinching fashion, but the freedom to declare it in a way that is winsome and gracious that causes people to engage. They may reject, they may be angry, but the reality is that it was spoken in freedom. The freedom that comes from the Holy Spirit, from knowing that we are alive in Him. But it's not just speaking, right? The Holy Spirit causes us to act. Signs and wonders of the kingdom, the text says. They pray that this God who created, who is now the sustainer and always the sustainer, who's poured out his Holy Spirit, that we might speak freely and also act in line with the kingdom of God. And it is so wonderful that the translations now go to signs and wonders. I looked at my old NIV that still used the word miracles, which is problematic. Signs and wonders. Let me ask you the question. Do you think the healing of the man's legs earlier in this passage were, was natural or unnatural? Right? We've been forced for a long time to think that that was unnatural. It's some breaking in of something weird and spiritual that's not natural. And so, of course, as natural people and those who can do science, we believe that unnatural things don't happen. Hence, no miracles. No, but it's a wonder. Why? It's a wonder because it is supernatural. It is nature on steroids. It is the reality that God created the world not to have people who couldn't walk, but for people who were created in the image of God to have all of the faculties and abilities they were originally created to have. When that man was healed, it was the reality of the kingdom and the resurrection breaking into that moment. A picture of what it'll be like when there really are no more tears. Where the consequences of brokenness and sin are completely removed. And those things which rob us of part of who we are in God are removed that we might delight in the fullness. It's completely natural for that man to be healed in the kingdom of God. It's wondrous. It's glorious. It's more than you and I can accomplish in and of our own power. But heaven help us if we think it is some odd thing that's unnatural. We don't know what nature really is. We're blind to the realities of the created order as it was originally inspired and spoken into being by God. The Holy Spirit acts through His people. And they speak life and truth into a man's life and his legs are healed. I don't have near this faith. It's, it's depressing. Right? Jeff was preaching about being more Pentecostal. I need that. It is amazing how quickly I whittled down through my rational Presbyterian thought the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, we now have more medical technology, so we need the Holy Spirit a little bit less. 
or, you know, God did that to jumpstart the church, but now we don't need those kinds of signs of the kingdom because we have rational theology, which will convince people that we're right. That's gone over well. So um, why is it that I actually don't believe that if we prayed in this room with vim and vigor, from anything from somebody's arthritis to be taken away or cancer healed, that it would actually happen. Like we go through the exercises and I'm a dutiful pastor and I pray for it. God help me, I don't believe it. I believe help my unbelief is my prayer when it comes to healing and the powerful moving of the Spirit. I think I should be more optimistic I think you all should hold me accountable to being more optimistic that God can and will restore nature to its right order. Not that he would act contrary to his word, but act in line with what he says he's about. And that I should trust that sure, it won't always work out that way, but that's okay, it will in the end. The prayer for healing may be a few years to be fulfilled. that he can and does act now. I'm too rational, too limiting of the power of God, too fearful of what happens if he actually started to do that. What would that require of me to be in the presence of such power administered in the midst of his people in a day and an age which I could witness? Mm. The power to shake the earth. Got to ask ourselves the question in the end, do we really want the earth to be shaken? I'm pretty comfy. Things here are fairly well for me. I mean, there's good days and bad days. But what does it mean to actually want the foundations of the world to be shaken and for the things that I'm attached to maybe to be shaken? Of course I want the things fixed, that I don't like, but what happens if everything gets shaken when the world shakes? Right? When God moves and the foundations of the world shake, that means things that I both want to see removed and have somewhat unfortunately become attached to will move as well. I don't get to pick what gets shaken when the world shakes at the power of God. Do we want the world to be shaken? How do we encourage one another that it's actually okay, that it will be safer and better and richer and more full and free, and that boldness comes when we are willing to have our own world shaken first, even as we seek to shake those loose from the power of death and sin who don't even know it yet. God's people are shaken. Their lives transform. The power shapes them by the Holy Spirit and that allows them and gives them the motivation and hope that the world itself can be shaken and that nothing of value will be lost in the midst of that. None of that will be destroyed. Only that which was broken, only that which was chaff will be lost. So they pray for boldness. They pray for transformation. May we too, whether we understand its implications or not, with growing confidence pray that the world might be shaken, that the Spirit might move, 
and that we might be bold. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you you did create words. We pray that some of your words might have been spoken. Lord, we thank you that you are more powerful than we can possibly imagine. Lord, may we, in ever greater degrees, have our eyes look up and see the power of the glory of our God. And may that lead us in confidence that you can continue to use and grow us. Lord, thank you for the sweetness of fellowship in you. In Christ's name, amen.